All right, grab a Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 through 2, 12 is where we are. It's a big chunk of scripture to bite off. Uh, some people heard that I was preaching this this morning and said, you're crazy, but I'm going to try my best to do it and uh, really need the Lord's help in that. But if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seats here. And if you don't have one at home, take those Bibles in the seats there back at home. We'll be really glad for you to have that. We've been walking verse by verse through this great letter of First Peter. Uh, you know, the early reformer Martin Luther said that this letter contains all that's necessary for the Christian to know. That's a, that's a big statement. In other words, what he's saying is that it really sums up our, our Christian faith well. It's, it's small, but it's incredibly dense. This passage today is, is among the most dense in the already dense book. It's loaded with various themes, and I'm going to do my best to touch on quite a bit of them uh, but it's, it's just a great chunk of scripture that we have. And, and what we're going to be looking at this morning is a massively important topic. It's our identity in Christ is what I want to talk about. Our identity in Christ. And ask the question, you know, as Christians, what, what is our identity? Really, what is, what is your identity? What do you think that you're, you're known for? One of the most significant days in my teenage years was the day that I got my driver's license. You remember this day? 16 years old. I was the kind of kid, you know, I, I hear about people in Boston all the time who take buses and they don't even worry about it until they're, you know, in their mid-20s. But I was 16 and that day I was going to get my license and took off. And uh, I, I remember going through the exam. I kept my hands at, at 10 and 12. My dad was in the back seat at 8 and 4, you know, just bracing himself. He was, he was very scared. And I did the course, successfully completed the course. I used all of my turn signals. I parallel parked my mom's extended minivan like a champion. You would be so impressed. And I passed. And so I, I stood in line to receive my driver's license. And then I go up to the rude lady at the counter who says, smile for the camera, and then snap, and, and snaps my picture. And uh, they, they spit it out of this laminating machine. And I have my, my license, and it was my ticket to freedom. You know, I had my license, and and I was so proud of that thing. And uh, I remember showing it off to all of my friends. I remember uh, just being in awe of what it told me, that I was a licensed driver. And I just stared at that license over and over and over again for, for just weeks. I, I seriously would just pull it out and just stare at it, you know, and just so cool. I am so cool. And I would go to the movies, and I no longer had to pull out my student ID to get the student discount, but I could pull out my license and say, see, 16. Not 18, 16. I'm a student. Give it to me for six bucks instead of nine bucks. It was a, it was a big deal. And I, I remember it was just, just a big deal to me, having my, my license, my, my new identity card. And uh, eventually, though, over time, it just stopped being a big deal. You know how that goes? It's just, it's your license. Who cares, right? Some of us are just, we want to hide that at all costs, actually. The, the picture was, was horrible. In fact, my, my, one of my license pictures uh, for my permit when I was 15 uh, they took the picture, and the shadow was such on my head that there was this weird shadow right here that it looked like I had a mullet. And I, at all costs, had to keep that one hid. But my 16-year-old uh, license, I was, I was super proud of. And, uh, but it, over time, it, it was something that just never got pulled out. And when it did get pulled out, it was a bad occasion because it was because a cop was saying, license and registration, please. And so I did, you, know, I did, you don't want it to be pulled out. Again, but here's what we're doing. Today, we're going to pull out the license. Today, we're going to pull out the ID, and we're going to, we're going to look at our identity. It's the only thing that's really going to matter in 100 years, right? It's the only identity that really is going to matter because it tells us who we are 
in Christ and looking at our identity in Christ is an important practice for us to do over and over and over again, to be reminded of who we are. And the book of 1 Peter is written to Christians in difficult times. And one thing that really helps in difficult times is to be reminded of who you are and to be reminded of whose you are, right? Kind of like a child who gets made fun of at school and comes home crying and and mommy or daddy gets to hold the child and say, I love you. I love you. You are mine. I will never leave you. You are my sweet baby girl. You're my sweet little boy. I love you, right? To be reminded of whose you are and, and have your identity in that. And so that's where we're going today with identity. Now, before we read, I want to recap a little bit. If you, you remember in verses 1 through 12, we, we've seen the gospel of Jesus, that we have this real hope because of what Jesus Christ has done. We read on that we have this amazing inheritance that, that God himself stands guard over. God stands guard over this inheritance. We read that it's imperishable, it's unfading, that no one can take it. You can't ruin it, not even by your, your sin and your many failures. We read in verses 10 through 12 that we are privileged to live on this side of the cross that the angels and the prophets long to 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 experientially know what we know and what we experience in the 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 gospel of jesus we also saw in verses 13 through 21 that now in light of the gospel we are made holy positionally but we're also to be holy practically in our practice that we are to be distinct and it happens as we obey the word of God, which brings us here to to chapter 1, verse 22. And so let's check this out together. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this is an an incredible incredible passage of scripture here that we start with. We have two more sections I want to look at, and I don't usually do this, but I want to give you the outline up front, and I would encourage you to take notes if you don't already, but take some notes. Here's the outline. It's very simple. It's that we are, as Christians, we are a Christ-centered family on mission. There's three points to that. First of all, Christ-centered. Next, family, and then on mission. And Peter starts with family, that we are family. So as a Christian, our identity hinges entirely on Christ. We are his. And last week we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, that we were ransomed, or as 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20 says, that you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body, that all of the Christian identity hinges on Christ. And in today's passage, we see that, that Peter starts by pointing out that we have been born into Christ's family, so that would make us siblings, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. And look at verse 22. It starts by saying, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love. 
Now, let, let's start by just being very careful that we do not misinterpret what is being said here. Do we purify our own souls from the stain of sin? No, absolutely not, right? Your soul is purified because you obeyed the truth, right? And Jesus says the truth, that is what shall set you free. And why is the truth truth? It's because Jesus did what he did. It's he lived the life we could never live. He died the death that we deserve in our place as our substitution. He then resurrects to life. He calls us to trust in that work. And then we are free from the stain the wage, ultimately, eternally, of sin and death because Jesus took it on himself. And if we obey that truth, we are saved. So we don't get credit for the purification of our souls. God does. So let's be clear there. Now, he says, if our souls have been purified, if we have been saved, if we have been born again, if we have become Christians, whatever language you choose to use there, then you are a part of of God's family. And you just cannot miss this as you interpret and read through the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 says that we are members of the household of God. Mark chapter 3, verses 33 through 35, Jesus says, who are my brothers and, and, and my mother? And he looks around at his disciples there and he, he says, here's my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, that's my, my mother, brother, and, and sister. Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 11 says, For he who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the, the same family. There's all this talk about family. Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 6 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, Christians have been adopted into the the family of God, and God is their father. And if he is our father, then we are brothers and sisters. Now, let me ask you, do you look at other Christians in this way? I mean, be honest with yourself. Do you look at other Christians in this way? This is not intended to be this this nice little illustration as if to say, well, you know, you're kind of like family, I, I guess. No. Now, the Bible is very clear. You are family, right? And acting like family is not this suggestion, like, hey, that would be nice. Maybe we could get along, treat each other like family. No, it's, it's a command in, in Scripture. It's an imperative in, in Scripture. What does Peter command here? First Peter 2, uh, or 1, 22, he says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That is a command. You must do this. And, and a huge part of, of your identity as a Christian stemming from Christ is each other. That's a huge part of our identity. That your, your relationship with God is, is not an individual relationship. It's, it's a team effort. And I don't know if you think about your relationship with God that way, but it is, it is a team effort. That yes, you have to have a personal relationship with God, that you don't carpool to heaven, that you don't just get to heaven because mom and dad are going to heaven or because you know some people or you hung out at a church. That it, it is a decision that you make on your own. However, it, it, it's a team, team relationship. In, in high school, I, I participated in uh, a lot of sports, but they weren't team sports in high school. Um, so in the fall, I was a cross-country runner. In the winter, I was a wrestler. Uh, in the, the spring, I was running track, but I wasn't, you know, passing the baton. I was a, a distance runner, so it was kind of by myself. And listen, even if everybody else lost, if I won, it was a good day, 
right? Unlike any other sport. So I could run the state championship by myself without the rest of my team. And if I won any race, even though my team lost, it was a, it was a good day. But the Bible doesn't allow for this kind of individuality. Do you think about your faith in that way? We cannot run the race without regard for each other. We cannot live out our Christian faith without regard for each other. We can't show up to school the next day with pride because we've got a medal nobody else does. It doesn't work that way. We should be deeply concerned for each other. He says, earnestly love them, your brothers, your sisters, your siblings spiritually, from a, from a pure heart. It's not this forced kind of, no, you really, you really love them and you see them as family. And so we need God to give us those kinds of eyes and that kind of affection. Look around the room. This is your, your church family. And make sure your, your brothers and sisters in the faith are still running, right? Make sure that they're refreshed as they need to be refreshed. Grab your water bottle and, and squirt them in the, the face, right? Get them refreshed. That's why Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 will say, exhort one another daily. There's that word one another again. Exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today. So they, they're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and they give up. That's why Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 calls us to restore, right? To restore the believer who is caught by by sin on the race. Goes on, Galatians 6 will say, bear one another's burden. There's that, there, there's that word again. And so the, the, the phrase one another is repeated over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. Here it is again in, in 1 Peter 1, 22. Love one another. Love one another. Let's keep going now. Look at verse 23. It says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable, the living and abiding word of God been born again by the imperishable seed. So back in John chapter 3, we first hear this idea of being born again. You recall some of you, the the occasion where uh, this very religious man named Nicodemus sneaks out in the dark and and he goes to, to visit Jesus and he inquires of Jesus some questions and Jesus challenges him. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, if you remember, he's, he's perplexed at this idea of, of being born again. He says, how can a man be born again? Is he going to go back into his mother's womb and, and be born? That that's, doesn't work, right? How, how does that happen? And Jesus explains that we are born physically of the flesh, but we must be born again spiritually of the, the spirit. And, and here Peter says, uh, by being born of, of the, the spirit, it is, it is something that is spiritual versus being born of the, the seed of human procreation is physical, and it's a perishable seed, he calls it. He says it's, it's perishable seed, but a Christian must be born of imperishable seed, which is the, the word of God, right? The imperishable seed is, is the word of God, God's living and active word, his Bible truth. And our obedience to that word, that seed, generates this, this new life, bringing us into a, a new family, the, the family of God. And then what Peter does here is he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, and he says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass wither, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news, or the gospel, that was preached to you. So this is this huge relationship. Huge, er, this huge statement that he makes, right, about the enduring nature of the Scripture, that people throughout all ages 
will disagree with the Scripture. They will seek to refute the Scripture. They will seek to eradicate the Scripture. But the Word of God will stand the test of time, and it will not be eradicated. It cannot be refuted. It is the Word of the Lord that stands forever. It's also a huge statement about our flesh. It's also this huge statement about our humanity, that that flesh is fading much like the flowers will fall and and die, that we will all physically die, but if you are born again and born of the, the Spirit because of your obedience to the Word, you will live forever as a member of the eternal family of God. And so an, another imperative that he gives us, if you look at chapter 2 now, verses 1 through 3, it speaks of how we are to live in relation with one another from this Word as well that has generated new life. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit, and all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so, what are the commands we read in here? The commands we read are, love one another. Love one another in such a way that you're, you're marked by unity, right? That there's no malice, there's no deceit, There's no hypocrisy. There's no envy amongst each other. There's no slander towards each other. Christians, there's no room whatsoever for this kind of garbage in the family, he is saying, right? He also then says, long for, for pure spiritual milk. So if you have been born again, like a newborn baby, you should, you should crave milk, the, the spiritual milk of the word of God. That is, Hearing and, and reading the Word of God is, is going to be vital to your Christian faith, to your, your, your Christian life, that, that you were born of the Word, it generates life, and then you continually long for the Word as a childlike member of the, the family of God. And so we have it here from Peter that we are our family. We're family. We're, we're born of the Spirit. We're born into God's family. We're craving our Father's words like newborn babies. And we deeply love each other. And we deeply care for one another, right? We're family. This brings us to the, to the next element of our identity that he gives us here. And that is that we are to be Christ-centered. We're to be Christ-centered. That Jesus is not just this figurehead for us. He's not just this uh, nice excuse for us to kind of gather together and do some social things and have a good social unit and for some of us have a family support provider. No, Jesus is everything to us. He's he's everything to us. That we are Jesus' people and our identity is wrapped up in him. And so let's read on. Look at verses uh, 4 through 8 of chapter 2 now. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, Uh, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, uh, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him should not be put to shame. And so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so Peter introduces to us this idea that Jesus is this living stone. He also twice later says uh, the the cornerstone, borrowing from, again, Isaiah, the prophetic words of Isaiah in chapter 8 and chapter 28. And in today's construction practices, we might be more familiar with the term 
uh, the foundation, right? And, and notice what Peter has really been doing back and forth through the book so far as we've seen it. He, he just goes back and forth and back and forth. He says, the gospel of Jesus, so be distinct. But don't think it's because of you, the gospel of Jesus. So be distinct and be a unique, radical family. But it's because of the gospel of Jesus, who is our, our cornerstone. Jesus is our everything. Jesus is our, our foundation. Everything is built on him. He is preeminent in our lives. When we first built our, our first home uh, in, in central Massachusetts, uh, one of my favorite things to, to watch in the whole process was to watch the, the, the chimney go up. I mean, the guy who did it was, it was phenomenal. He just looked really cool and had these unique uh, stoneworks, the way he did it. Um, but I remember when he showed up to the site, the, the bricklayer, uh, he, he showed up, and it, it felt like it took forever to actually have the bricks start going up. So it felt like he'd been there for a long time, and we weren't seeing much progress. But once he started going up with the bricks, he was, he was cruising. And the reason was is because he took a long, long time to set up that foundation block that the bricks would then be built up on. He needed to make sure it was the right height, the right angle. Everything was squared, because if this block was off, everything would have been off. The stonework would have been off, right? And it would have thrown off the trajectory of the entire thing. Everything rests on this block. And so it makes sense as to why Peter would say Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the, the living stone. And the stones that are being built on top of him are, are living stones. He's, the living stone has made us living stones. And, and if he's off, we're off. And if he's not there, we're off. And in fact, without a, a solid foundation, you might be able to make a, a nice building. It might look pretty cool. It might be, be pretty uh, beautiful and, and impressive. But it's not going to take long for that to come crumbling down. Similarly, when it comes to, to holiness, you might be able to make something that's really, really impressive. And people might say, wow, you're spiritual, you're holy, you do good things. But if Jesus is not the foundation, it will come crumbling down down. It's not going to hold up if you seek to clean yourself up apart from Christ. Similarly as well, if we seek to build this new church here in West Boston, we might be able to build up this nice social structure. We might be able to create Sunday experiences, as a lot of people call them now, where where people can come in and and have a really good time and be really enjoyable. But if Jesus isn't the centerpiece, if it's not all about Jesus and all resting on Jesus, it's not going to hold up. And that's why you can drive around Boston today and even around New England today, and you'll see many beautiful, gorgeous church-building structures that are empty inside or have been converted to condos or have been converted to uh, a school. Buildings that once housed uh, great movements within the, the, the Great Awakening revival. But when they kicked Jesus out of the house, the house came crumbling down. But Jesus says, John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. He's got to be the cornerstone. He's got to be the foundation for us. Another teaching that we get in this section from Peter here is that the church is not a building anyhow, right? He says the church is, is, is not a building. So we try to be very careful around here about the language that we use. The building is, is not the church. God's chosen people are the church, right? And Peter says, built upon the foundation of Jesus, you yourselves, as if to make it very clear, you yourselves are the living stones being built up as a spiritual house. And so what is the church? You 
yourselves, he tells us. Another really comforting piece, is, I told you this is so multifaceted, another comforting piece that, that Peter gives us here is that for these suffering people and for us who, who struggle and have difficulty in this life, we will have tribulation in this life. He, he tells us that there, there's always going to be two responses to Jesus. There will always be two responses for Jesus. And so if you're a Christian who's struggling and you're wondering, is this all worth it? I mean, I look around and it seems like there are so many people ticked off about Jesus. Here's what we see from Peter. He says, it's no surprise to God. It's no surprise to God. God's not saying, wait, why are they rejecting me? He's not saying that at all. No, Isaiah prophesied that he would be a rejected stone. Isaiah prophesied that he would be a, a suffering servant. And as you look throughout history, Jesus has always caused extreme reactions, hasn't he? I mean, he just always does that. He he divides, doesn't he? He, he divides. So those who, who don't have uh, the, the God-authored, God-initiated, unmerited, grace-based salvation, he, he divides them from those who, who do, from, from those who are, are, are self-righteous, merited, self-consumed, godless, works-based salvation to those who say, it's not me, I completely trust on the Lord. We rest everything on him. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the point. He's the, 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 the key character. He's the center of our lives. Jesus is everything, right? But to many others, he's inflaming because he says, I'm God. And others say, no, no, I, I'm my own God. Or he'll say, I am sovereign. And others would say, no, no, I run my own life. Or he would say, I'm the only way. And then others would say, no, no, I, I'll choose which way is best for me. And he says, all your deeds fall short. And others would say, no, 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 that's insulting to me. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And others would say, no, I'll decide what's true. He enraged the Pharisees. He enraged the Jews. He was a threat to the kings of his day. He's always divided. Truth does that, right? Truth absolutely does that. But for this suffering church, this suffering believers, Peter writes them to encourage them to say, listen, don't be surprised when the world reacts harshly to the Jesus inside of you. Don't be surprised. This is normal. This is completely normal. So let me ask you, is your family struggling with the Jesus inside of you? It's normal. Maybe some of you, I know your, your spouse is struggling with the Jesus inside of you. That's normal. Coworkers, that's normal. Your, your friends that you've had for a long time, they don't get it, do they? It's normal, right? They can't unless chapter 1, verse 3, God the Holy Spirit causes them to be born again to a living hope. They won't get it, and it can divide. Now, for us, it unifies if we say we trust in Jesus, but for those who reject him, it can very much so divide until the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to have these harsh reactions to Jesus. Until that day, it's going to be difficult. But on that day, verses 6 and 7, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, right? On that day, there is honor that awaits those of you who believe. So keep on with him at the the center. We are a family. We are Christ-centered family. 
And the last one that we need to look at is we're a Christ-centered family on mission. This is so important. Our last point and a key element of our identity is that we have a mission, that we have a purpose as a Christ-centered family. Look at verses 9 through 12. Verses 9 through 12 of chapter 2. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, we're going to spend more time on this as we continue throughout this book. But where does he start here? He says, you're a chosen race. You're a chosen race. Now, we know that Israel was God's chosen people, chosen race, called to to bless the world. And now you are the chosen race with a, a, a purpose, not a race as in a particular ethnicity, but we are made into this new people, the Bible tells us. So, so be encouraged. Even if you're not the world's choice, you are God's choice. You're, you're God's choice, not based on anything within yourself, but that God is freely loving and he gives of himself. You're a chosen race. He says a holy nation. You're, you're a people, like the people of Israel. And he also says, and you're, you're a priesthood. He's, he's repeating a point that he's already pointed out in verse 5. You're, you're a priesthood. Now, what's the role of the priesthood? They offered sacrifices, didn't they? Romans chapter 12, 1. Today we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, our spiritual act of worship. We live our lives in such a way as to bring glory to God. And the second half of verse 9 reads that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we have a mission, and what is our mission here? Our mission is that we might proclaim the excellencies of him. That's, that's our mission, that we can live our lives in such a way that whatever we do, it brings glory to the Lord. Does your life proclaim how great God is? That's a huge piece of your identity. That's a huge piece of why you're here and what you are to do. It's everything. And, and more on verses 11 and 12 next week. We'll, we'll definitely jump more into that. But notice that he tells us that, that our conduct is linked to our proclamation. A lot, a lot of people just proclaim, but their conduct doesn't reflect what they're co- proclaiming. And people are confused, and they don't want it, and they claim hypocrisy. But he says our, our conduct is linked to our proclamation that you live out a holy life on this earth in the power of God the Holy Spirit who has changed you and people start to take notice of that and you start to have opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of God and some it says will see your good works your good deeds and they will glorify God that's the mission to proclaim the excellencies of God in whatever we do. This mission must be on the front burner. And so, self-evaluation time. Is this mission on the front burner? 
Is it about the glorification of God or is it about the glorification of self to get the house that you've always wanted, to get the car that you've always wanted, to get the job, to get the girl, to get the guy, to have the children? Is it about God or is it about self? The mission is to glorify God and for others to see your good works and also jump in and glorify God. And for you to proclaim the glory of God and all that he has done for us. Be reminded. It's, it's not about being a people of God so that other people could look at our good deeds and glorify us. No, it's completely Christ-centered. And, and, and though it's challenging, we don't go at it alone. We're a family. And then we're a family that has a mission. We're a Christ-centered family on mission. That's what we do. We worship Jesus. We live like family. And people see our love for one another and how we live out our lives. And they give us opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of who he is. That's who we are. That's your identity. And you can put your license away, but keep pulling that out. Keep saying, this is who I am in Christ. And for a suffering struggling, hurting, weary Christian. You see that and say, that, that keeps me going. It keeps me going. It's my identity in Christ. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And Christians, as I pray, I'm going to pray that you're encouraged. I'm going to pray that you're refocused. That you know who you are, that you know whose you are. While I'm praying, if you're not a Christian, today you can become a Christian. Maybe today as you hear the message of Jesus and what he's done for you, maybe he is no longer offensive in this moment. That you've seen your sin, but you also see that he loves you and he's got a great plan for you. And you want to build your life on him as the foundation. I'm going to pray for that as well. Let me pray for you. Father, I commit my brothers and sisters in Christ to you. Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged as they see and think on their identity in you. God, may this resonate with them over and over and over again. May they think on who they are in Christ. Commit them to you, Father. I pray for those who have never given their lives to Jesus, that up until this point, maybe Jesus has just been so offensive in every single way. But maybe in this moment, they they see that the offense is only for their good that they might acknowledge their sin, they might trust in him and build their lives upon him and not upon self. That they would see that you have done for them and your son Jesus what they could never do for themselves. That you lived a life they could never live. You died the death that you did not deserve, but that we deserve in our place as our substitution. And you're not still in the grave, but you resurrected the life victoriously, reigning as king. And that if we trust in you and your finished work on the cross, we can be made right with you. We can be made positionally holy. And really be able to give the opportunity to live out practical holiness on this earth. So I commit them to you, Lord. May they trust in Jesus as best they know how. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved today. Do your work in us as we respond in song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.